Hi, this is Karin Zessos of ASCOA Online. In September, a group of hackers put the armed forces of several Latin American countries on notice. Known as Guacamaya or Macaw, the group had already carried out at least three major hacks this year, releasing information from private companies and government agencies in what it says was an effort to sabotage mining and oil operations and to protect the environment and indigenous people from imperialist interests. Then, last month, the hacktivists released 10 terabytes of materials from military and police agencies in Chile, Colombia, El Salvador, Mexico, and Peru. The data dump involved tens of thousands of emails and files, and the sheer volume is so huge that it means it could take months or even years to comb through it all. In other words, revelations and scandals could be coming to light for a long time. The cyber attack already led one general in Chile to resign. Otro tema que ha marcado las últimas horas porque ayer jueves en la tarde el general Guillermo Paiva renunció finalmente a su cargo como jefe del Estado Mayor Conjunto. And in the case of Mexico, which accounts for six of the ten terabytes of leaked materials, information spanning well over a decade has come to light about everything from officials' organized crime ties to concerns about the president's health to the military's involvement in human rights abuses. All of this has shown a new light on how the armed forces operate. I think just after so many years of opacity and this lack of accountability, all this information that's come out is seen as fair game, right? And so everyone is looking at it. Everyone is writing stories on it. That's Cecilia Farfan Mendez, the head of security research programs at the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies at the University of California, San Diego, and co-founder of the Mexico Violence Resource Project. She explained to me what the revelations tell us about Mexico's military, as well as what they mean for bilateral security cooperation with the United States. But first, we hear from Juan Pablo Castro the Director of Technology and a Cybersecurity Strategist for Trend Micro, a cybersecurity software firm. He spoke with my colleague Chase Harrison about why these Latin American militaries were so vulnerable and whether the identity of Guacamaya matters at all. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Latin America In Focus. Latinoamérica en foco. América Latina en foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas, on politics, economics, and culture in the region. Juan Pablo, thank you so much for coming on the Latin America in Focus podcast. Cyber attacks, it's not a word we haven't heard before this year in regards to Latin America. In May, there was a big hack of a bunch of Peruvian banks. Starting in May and extending throughout the summer, there was a hack on government institutions throughout Costa Rica. And now we have this massive guacamaya hack that is happening throughout the region. Is it correct to say that Latin America has become a hub for cyber attacks lately? And if so, why might this be? So thank you for asking. That's a great question because cyber attacks happens all the time, all around the world. So Latin America is not a special part of, of the world, but 
recently, most of these cyber attacks get the headlines of the news because the impact. Because we need to understand that many cyber attacks has to be with motivations. In this case, for for these cyber attacks, especially ransomware that you mentioned with some financial institutions, with government institutions, and right now this hack attributed to some group called Wakamaya made the, the headlines because the amount of information stolen and the impact of the information and most of the information is confidential. So you're saying that the quantity of cyber attacks in this region isn't particularly notable, but the quality or the impact of them is is quite high. Countries across Latin America were victims of the Guacamaya attack. Was there any pattern to which countries were and maybe weren't attacked? Was it related at all to a country's cybersecurity preparedness, for example? Yes, it's very interesting to, to understand what all these attacks happens maybe at the same time or in the same maybe time frame. And it's not because especially anything that's happening in the in the countries. In my understanding and the under, and researching about how the Wakamaya team get that kinds of information, it seems to be that maybe they have a little time frame to exploit the vulnerability that they are going to use to get the information because there were public vulnerabilities, especially with some mail servers. Maybe that's the reason why everything happened at the same time. Maybe that's another explanation about why some countries get hacked and another ones not. It's because the the opportunity that they have at this time. Let's talk about that vulnerability. You mentioned mail servers. What happened with these mail servers? And is it surprising to you that that was the point of vulnerability for these attacks? No, no, no. For me, it's it's not su- surprising because uh, working in the cybersecurity market for more than 20 years, the main issue that has any company about any attacks has to be 90% of the time with vulnerabilities. Any kind of software has vulnerabilities, and vulnerabilities are errors that programmers do that can give any external attacker or any people access. So that's going to happen, happen every day, happen to every software company. No one is immune, so we need to detect the vulnerabilities, and that's something that is, is very important. It seems true that everyone from your grandma to a sophisticated government institution is grappling with these same IT problems. But I think there was some surprise that the institutions that had these big vulnerabilities in this case were largely military institutions. In a lot of countries, the military is part of the constellation of bodies that are in charge of heading up cybersecurity efforts that are supposed to be setting the parameters and the standards for what businesses, citizens, other government institutions should be doing. What does it mean for these countries, that an institution that should be more advanced in cybersecurity, these military bodies, were the ones who experienced the hack. Oh, that's a great point, because that allows us to understand the challenge that we have with patching vulnerabilities, because it's not only about applying a patch. When you apply a patch to a software, especially when those kind of softwares maybe are old or are on-premise, you need to understand that first you need to identify the vulnerability. Someone needs to detect that there are vulnerable servers 
and then to apply a patch. So that takes time. So what is very strange in this case and rise all the, the flags and alarms here is that there should be another layer of security in front of those servers to stop that kind of vulnerabilities because they are well known. So that's give us another clue about how difficult it is for the security teams to translate the need for more budget about to protect the critical infrastructures of a country. I'm sure a lot of these governments, whether they were attacked or not, are doing the same thing you're doing right now, thinking through their procedures, their budget, how to prevent attacks in the future. How would you compare the responses of the governments in Latin America to the Guacamaya attack? And are we seeing new security measures being announced throughout the region or not? Yes, yes. Many countries, uh, especially the the countries that were attacked, announced different measures. Some of those countries were more advanced at cybersecurity strategies, national strategies, legislations or policies, and, and other countries were more immature. But in some point, all the, the countries has a response. For example, Mexico created a cybersecurity council with the Congress, the private sector, the public sector, experts from the industry to create a more robust cybersecurity law. And that's that's great. I want to flip the script for a moment. We've talked about the victims of these cyber crimes, but let's talk about the perpetrator of the Guacamaya attack, the Guacamaya group. What we know of this group is what they've told us, that they are motivated by fighting for the environment, that they are comprised of citizens from throughout Latin America, throughout the world. Compare this group, which seems to be a hacktivist group, to groups like the Conti group that perpetrated the attack in Costa Rica, which was a criminal enterprise. And in the past, cyber crimes in the world have been committed by governments themselves, Does the perpetrator matter? Should we be thinking a lot about who the Guacamaya group is right now? The perpetrator or the actor, the cyber threat actor, as as we used to to call, is very important before the attack or when the attack is happening because you can understand the techniques that they use. But most of the time, (laughs) we get informed about the the threat actor after the attack and not before the attack. So that's another thing that the companies should be doing, is trying to understand how those attackers are into their networks. In the meantime, the attack is happening. Because that's not happening from one second to another. It's not just one click and they get terabytes of information. That kind of attacks start many days ago, maybe 15 days ago or one month ago, in some cases, months ago, the the attackers are inside. So that's the reason why it's very important to understand the groups and the techniques, because at those times, we can prevent the impact when the actor is inside the network. So to understand the ecosystem of those criminals, we need to understand that there are some networks of criminals that we call access broker or access as a service broker. They get into a company, they hack a company and get the access, only the access. And they sell the access to other groups. So 
this kind of access brokers sell a lot of disinformation in the dark web or channels for the communication with cyber criminals. It seems like we might have to add a new constant to life. We've got death, taxes, and now cyber attacks. Juan Pablo, thank you so much (laughs) for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me and have a good day. That was Juan Pablo Castro, a cybersecurity expert speaking with Chase Harrison. Next up, we turn to Mexico. Transcripciones de intervenciones telefónicas, menciones de uso de WhatsApp y Signal, fotografías, directorios de contactos, redes de vínculos, seguimientos a personajes de alto nivel como el embajador de los Estados Unidos, disputas entre los secretarios de Defensa y Marina, discrepancias entre las versiones oficiales de número de muertos en operativos. Mexico accounts for a majority of the data leaked by Guacamaya. We hear from UC San Diego's Cecilia Farfan Mendez about the impact of the attacks, and she addresses a key question. Will anybody be held accountable for what the leaks have revealed? Cecilia, thank you so much for being with me again here on the Latin American Focus podcast. It's great to have you with us talking about this topic. Now, Since the beginning of October, one story after another has been coming out about the Guacamaya hacks on Mexico's defense ministry, uh, also known as Sedena. And these hacks have covered all kinds of stories and topics. There's been evidence of spying on reporters and activists, cover-ups of sexual assault in the army, the military's involvement in the disappearances of the 43 students in the Ayotzinapa case, and there have been, there have been so many leaks. Can you give us an idea of the size and scope of the Guacamaya leaks in Mexico? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me back. It's great to have this conversation. I think the scope of the leaks of, you know, this Wakamaya group, what's fascinating is that we're getting a lot of information on the army that we normally don't get. Sedena in Mexico is known for its opacity and for its lack of accountability. And so whether it's five emails or 5,000, the reality is that just having access to this information is, is a huge change in terms of how people get it you know, details of how Sedena operates. Of course, a lot of the things that are coming out have been also things that have been reported for a while by human rights organizations, by activists, these concerns about the role of the military, particularly in public safety. And so the fact that we are also getting that information that is coming directly from Sedena, I think only supports what activists that have concerns about the role of the military have been saying for a while. What is interesting, however, and I I would add that unlike other countries, for example, like Germany, where we would have a lot of or they have a lot of privacy concerns of how the information is obtained in Mexico, I think just after so many years of opacity and this lack of accountability, all this information that's come out is seen as fair game, right? And so everyone is looking at it. Everyone is writing stories on it. And I think it just shows you just that the desire for having this information and the want for understanding how Sedena operates in the country. Yeah, absolutely. And as I understand it, it's about six terabytes of information. So there is even is this idea that there's a lot more information to come. They've just really scratched the surface. So it's very interesting, uh, as you're pointing out, the sort of issue around opacity and finally getting to look at, at what's been going on. All of this is happening at the same time that the government is taking 
a number of steps to extend and expand militarization in Mexico. We've had legislative moves to transfer the National Guard from civilian to military control and to extend the military's role in policing until 2028. What is it meant to have all these stories coming out at this time? And can you tell us a little bit more about how the military's role has been getting expanded in Mexico? So one thing that is very interesting, as you point out, is that increasingly we see the military involved in more tasks, right? So from 2006 onwards, um, you know, they were their role in sort of public safety was expanded. They certainly had been working in counter-narcotics policies since the 70s, uh, specifically destroying illicit crops. And, and they had a very big role in that. And then, of course, with President Calderon, we know how they were deployed across the country and just the deployment over the years has increased. But what is interesting and what we're seeing under the AMLO administration is that they have become part of his economic plan. So it's not only that the role has expanded in public safety, but now they're also involved in this economic agenda that President Lopez Obrador has. And so that's why we're seeing them build airports and being involved with the Mayan train and just being put in positions where they can also generate revenue. Of course, again, activists have raised concerns about this expanded role and whether or not they can actually help in public safety tasks. And if we're seeing them being involved in more activities, then, you know, are, are we going on a path that is eroding democratic rule in Mexico? Mm-hmm. The Sedena leaks occurred at the same time that the United States and Mexico held high-level security talks just recently in Washington. So have the hacks revealed anything key about joint security collaboration? And do you think the hacks had an impact on these discussions, on these bilateral talks? I mean, publicly... At least we don't know, right, that there has been an impact. And there was a statement issued uh, after this high-level security meeting that was just held a few days ago. And it, it mentioned that there was a discussion around that and the need to strengthen, you know, uh, cybersecurity for, you know, Mexican institutions. And so that was sort of like the extent of the public statement. I think this particular U.S. government administration in the context of how President López Obrador talks about sovereignty and respect for national interest and respect, you know, each other sort of like domestic politics is being very careful about not making a public statement about this. And so if there are any concerns, they will, I believe, remain private from the U.S. government, because I think the priority has been, let's find a way and a path to work together without stepping on toes. And they, I think they are very aware that if they were to comment specifically in the military, that would probably create some setbacks and some bumps along the road. And I'm, I'm sure they don't want more on that. So publicly, at least I see there's no real incentive for the U.S. to, to comment on this. Part of the reason why it was so easy to access some of this information was how things were being communicated. We know that people were using platforms and communicating top secret, high level information in a not exactly the most secure way. Now, in spite of all of that, we know that Sedena and the military, the military is one of the most trusted institutions in Mexico. And you've written about this. Can you talk a little bit about why the military is so trusted in Mexico? And do you think that that the Guacamaya leaks will have an impact on that? 
So one of the things that we have known for a while, and especially through the results of the victimization survey that the National Institute for Statistics and Geography publishes every year, is that Yes, the Army and the Navy have those high levels of trust. And so what I did with my colleagues is we also conducted another survey on the quality of Mexican democracy. And we wanted to unpack that a little bit more and and try to understand what exactly do people trust about the armed forces. And so what we found is two things. So they, they tend to trust them for tasks, for example, related to distribution of the COVID vaccine, distribution of social benefits as well, they tend to trust them less for public safety tasks. The other thing that came out of the survey, and it's very interesting, is that we also asked people if they believe the arm, if the armed forces are cutting deals uh, with criminal groups. And over 50 or 52% of people said they think this is the case. So this idea that there's high levels of trust, perhaps because they're not corrupt, at least in our survey, we're not finding that because there's a sense of we trust them, you know, to conduct certain tasks, but we don't necessarily believe that they are just not a corrupt institution. So there's a sense that perhaps they get things done. The other thing that is interesting that came out of our, of our survey is that is support for civilian institutions has been decreasing. So we see these high levels of support for the army of the Navy at the same time that there's an erosion of institutions that are central for democratic rule. And so INE, this institution that organizes elections in Mexico, their support for them has been decreasing considerably and they're essential for democracy in Mexico. And so in contrast, what we see is people are supporting the army and the navy at a time that they're also decreasing their support for civilian institutions. That's incredible. I'll make a note for listeners that we will have uh, links to the survey that Cecilia is mentioning in the podcast notes so that you can look at more. But it is kind of fascinating that we have this double side to this, that it's, it's a trusted institution, and yet so many Mexicans perceive that this institution as potentially being involved in corrupt practices or, or organized crime. And I, I want to talk to you a little bit about accountability. I mean, there are things that have come out in these leaks that suggest corrupt practices, but it doesn't seem as though there has been much in the way of, uh, of accountability or culpability related to what's been released so far. Can you tell us a little bit about how the government and how the military has responded to the information coming out in these hacks and when they've been asked about it? So they're not denying that the hacking happened, right? They're not saying this is false information, but they're not really saying this is a huge problem for us. This is a major security threat to the military. So there was a recognition of, okay, this happened, but we're trying to make it seem that this is not a huge deal. You know, the way that, of course, the press and activists have reacted on the leaks. I think the concerning part is that when Congress wanted to have a hearing with the Secretary of Defense, he rejected the idea of going to the Congress and have that accountability moment there. And he said, if they want to meet with me, they can come to my office. And so, of course, again, going back to this idea of if we live in a democracy and we have checks and balances and Congress should be able to you know, ask the Secretary of Defense about this vulnerability to this institution and they 
rejected that idea. And then we saw also Mexico's interior ministry, the Secretary of Gobernación, also saying that the Secretary of Defense doesn't have to go to this hearing. And so the concern is at the time, as these legal changes are happening, as you were mentioning, that there's a lot of discussion that we shouldn't be worried because the army is going to be responsible and they're going to be accountable to a civilian institution. The fact that they would not even go to a hearing, I think, leaves us wondering if they, in fact, would be accountable that way, as they said they would be. Mm -hmm. I have to ask the question now. Given um, what we've already seen come out and end this sort of question of of accountability, what do you think it would take for there to be some accountability? What do you think it would take for us to see something like uh, maybe a high level person step down, or or for these discussions that have been skirted to to actually take place and to be taken seriously? I mean, I think that's a great question. And that's also something that I think a lot of us wonder about, right? Because we also, this administration also had the Cienfuegos case happen, right? So Peña Nieto's Secretary of Defense being arrested in Los Angeles, that creating a diplomatic crisis of sorts between Mexico and the U.S., then him being returned to Mexico and then being acquitted uh, by Mexico, right? And the U.S. Department of Justice reserving the right to still prosecute him. And so... When that happened, we saw also the military sort of taking a very active role in protecting, you know, someone very high ranking within their file and saying, well, he's not having to be accountable, right? I mean, Mexico said we're going to conduct an investigation, but it was, all the process was quite quick. Right now, having Cienfuegos as that precedent and now knowing that the federal government, the executive branch is saying, you don't have to go to Congress and, and hold that hearing, it really... I think a lot of us are wondering, like, well, when when do they have to be accountable then? Mm -hmm. Cecilia, it's been great to have you uh, here again. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by John Orbach. Our executive producer is Luisa Leme. We encourage you to check the podcast notes for links. The soundtrack to this episode was recorded for America Society. Visit musicoftheamericas.org for more about upcoming concerts. We also hear music by Son Huasteco group Trio Miramar in this episode. Check podcast notes for links to hear all the music. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Give us five stars, write a review, share, and subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And find out more at as-coa.org slash podcast. Thank you.